Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It had been three days since Sabine Dardenne had been ripped off of her bike and transported in a dirty van to a rundown house and then chained to a bed by her neck. The first few days of captivity were a blur. Her kidnapper explained that he worked for a dangerous man who wanted to take revenge on Sabine's father, who was a police officer. He said his boss wanted to kill her to get back at her father, but that he was going to disobey this boss in order to save her life, but that they needed to hide her away. On the third day, he led her downstairs to her new home. It was a basement cellar hidden behind a trap door. It was seven feet long and three feet wide, with a ceiling of only about five feet in height. There was no natural light, and it was damp and cold. Sabine was in a very dark place. is somebody who understands emotions. And I told them, it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time. It would have been the end of it in 1986. But my God, it was just the beginning. I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts in those days. Welcome to La Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves. On June 24th, 1995, two young girls went missing in the province of Liège in Belgium. Two months later, two more young girls went missing in the province of West Flanders on the Belgian coast. In May of the following year, Sabine Dardenne was abducted in Tournai, and then in August, Letitia Deleuze went missing from Bertry. We know a lot about Sabine's experiences based on letters in a journal found where she was held. Her kidnapper encouraged her to write letters to her parents, which he promised to get to them. Sadly, it was just a ploy 
to get her to believe that he was protecting her from an imaginary big bad boss and to better understand how to manipulate her. The innocence of Sabine's letters is heartbreaking. They were openly published years later, so I decided to share parts of them in this episode. Here is an excerpt of one of these letters, read by a young girl the same age as Sabine at the time. Recording this take was upsetting in and of itself. The youth and innocence of a 12-year-old is something to be cherished and nurtured. It's crushing to imagine Sabine writing these letters in the hope of reaching out to those she loved. Just hearing a recording of her words is difficult. Listener discretion is advised. Parts of them have been shortened and adjusted in translation from French. Dear Mommy, Daddy, Nanny, Sophie, Sebastian, Sam, Tiffy, and all the rest of the family. I asked the man who's keeping me if I could write you again, because Mommy's birthday is approaching and Sophie and Sam's too. I'm so, so sad I can't wish you a happy birthday and give you a big kiss and maybe even offer you a present. Unfortunately, that's not possible, and if I came home, we'd all be killed and I don't want that. I'd rather write you from here instead of being at home dead. The man who's keeping me told me his friend gave mommy my last letter. And after reading it, you said I should be sure to watch myself well and learn to like what the man does to me. And to be nice to him because if he gets angry with me, he could give me to the bad man who would hurt me and kill me. By the way, did you eat the radishes? If you want to replant some, there is some seed left in the docker's shoebox in my room. The food I get here is disgusting. There's never any sauce or seasoning. Almost all the food he gives me is expired. He says the expiry date on the label is the cell date. Everything I get is the generic brand, but he drinks real Coke and eats real Nutella. If he has to leave or has visitors, I have to stay locked in the basement, sometimes for several days without any meals. When he left for five days, he gave me some expired chocolate from 1993. It tasted old, but I ate it anyways. Hope you're thinking of me. I miss you and adore you all very much. The letters from Sabine are long and detailed. I left out the parts about the repeated assaults she experienced at the hands of this monster. In early August, he locked her into the basement and said he'd be back soon with a new friend for her. On August 10th, 1996, after several days of solitude in the dark and damp dungeon, he opened the trap door and told Sabine her new friend was there. He led her to the same upstairs room where she'd been placed after being abducted. There, to Sabine's horror, was another girl in a drug-induced haze chained to the bed. It was her new future cellmate, Letitia Delez. You'll remember from the last episode that a sixth girl, Letitia Delez, went missing on August 8th, 1996 from the village of Bertry in the south of Belgium. The King's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet, along with investigating judge Conrad and police, were furiously working on tracking down a lead they'd uncovered from interviews in Bertry. Two separate witnesses reported seeing a suspicious-looking van near where Letitia was last seen. 
and by chance, one of the witnesses was able to recall the van well, even remembering the first three letters of the license plate. He thought the van was a Renault Trafic, and the license plate began with F-R-R. They quickly ran a search of all Renault vehicles in Belgium with a license plate starting with F-R-R, and the query gave them 77 hits. Only one of these 77 Renault vehicles was a Trafic model. It was registered to a man from the town of Charleroi, named Marc Dutroux. During my interview with the former King's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet, he talked me through how it went down from there. Monsieur Van Rillard. The agent Van Rillard ran a search in his computer, and several names come back, one of which was a certain Dutroux. I asked, who's this guy? He was someone very interesting and had been under surveillance for a year then by the Gendarmerie of Charleroi. And we set up a meeting that evening with uh, First Sergeant Michaud and two officers from Charleroi who were going to bring more information about the suspect and their surveillance operation. At 8 p.m., I was there, and the three officers from Chalois arrive with a relatively large case file, and Mr. Michaud tells us that they have a lot of suspicions about Dutroux, who'd already been sentenced to 13 years of prison for abduction, rape, and sequestration of minors, got out of prison two years ago, and had apparently solicited people to help him abduct young girls and imprison them in hiding places he was building at his home. I said, that's great. What's he doing in Bertry where a young girl just disappeared? An operation was set in motion right away. At 9 p.m., the investigating judge set it up with the gendarmerie. It's after 9 p.m., and we can't execute a warrant without obvious offense at night. There's no obvious offense at this point. There are clues that it could be Dutroux, but there's no obvious offense. We can't make an arrest just based on suspicion between sunset and sunrise. But there's nothing preventing us from surveilling him. At 3 a.m., all of the addresses of Dutroux are under surveillance. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Detrue owns several rundown properties, which he'd managed to accumulate over time. Judicial authorities and police moved as quickly as they could. When they found the name Mark DeTrue and checked his records, they knew he was a strong suspect. The gendarmerie of Charleroi had a huge file on DeTrue, and it was obvious that he could be a perpetrator. His file included other possible accomplices, including his wife, Michel Martin, and friends Michel Lelièvre and a Frenchman named Bernard Weinstein. Michel Martin was DeTrue's wife, or second wife, I should say. In my interview with the King's prosecutor, he refers to her as Martin. Michel Lelièvre was a friend of Dutroux's, or more like a lackey who was strung out on drugs and did odd jobs for Dutroux. In the interview, he's referred to as Lelièvre. Bernard Weinstein was another friend of Dutroux's, or more like an associate, who worked with him on various criminal enterprises. Weinstein was a hardened criminal from France with a very long rap sheet. It was now 3 a.m. on August 13, 1996, four days after Letitia had gone missing. Julie, Melissa, Anne, Effia, and Sabine were all still missing as well. Police had all of Dutroux's properties under surveillance, but they couldn't move in for arrest until after sunrise because of an arcane Belgian law precluding warrants to be served at night. During surveillance, they believed that Mark Dutroux, as well as two of his possible accomplices, were all together at a property registered to his wife Michel Martin in the town of sars la buissière As the sun rose, they applied for a warrant to search the property. At one point, we got information from sars la buissière that Dutroux, Martin, and Le Lièvre were all three there at the residence of Martin with the famous Renault traffic that was the object of multiple consistent witness testimony. Judge Conrad said, okay, let's go. Exercise the warrants, make the arrests, and bring them in. Police rushed into the residence in sars la on August 13th and arrested the three suspects. Dutroux was 39 years old with thick, dark hair and a mustache. He kept his cool and submitted to the arrest. Martin, Dutroux's wife, was 36, Underneath her long blonde bangs, her eyes looked vacant and wary. And Le Lièvre, Dutroux's lackey, was 25 years old with greasy hair, and he looked strung out on drugs. As police brought them into the local station for interrogation, other officers searched the van and residence. They'd heard rumors from an informant that Dutroux had tried to hire others to help him build hidden chambers in his home. But the police's search turned up nothing and without more concrete evidence of a crime, police could only hold them for 24 hours. So time was of the essence. 
At the station, one police team was interrogating Dutroux while another was interviewing his lackey, Le Lièvre. But the wife, Martin, was just sitting there and no one was interrogating her. And Boulay grew frustrated. The police team with Inspector Dumoulin took Marc Dutroux in for interrogation. Le Lièvre was interrogated by another team from Neufchâteau. And Martin was held in waiting until one of those teams would be free to interrogate her. I told Captain Deneux, who was in charge of this operation in Charleroi, that there was another team of judicial police there. So let's use them to interrogate Martin. I only had 24 hours to hold these people. And they moaned about the judicial police always arriving at the 11th hour. And I said, listen, as the king's prosecutor, I'm the one who decides here, okay? I told them they had to give Martin to another officer who was available. And the gendarmes started complaining, etc., etc. Moreover, just after having this altercation with an officer of the gendarmerie, I walked up to the window and see a guy leaving the station. And I said, who's that? And someone said it was the Lièvre. And I asked, is he leaving? Yes, they said. The Neufchâteau investigators didn't think he'd done anything wrong. And then Commander Leblanc arrived, who had been questioning neighbors at Dutroux's house in Marcenel. And Dutroux's neighbors had said that they saw Dutroux arrive home in the van on Friday night, together with Michel, the olive-skinned guy. And I said, who's Michel, the olive-skinned guy? And they said, oh, that's Michel Lelievre. And I said, well, he just fucked off out the door. At that point, all of the police again started looking for Lelievre, who was now walking around freely in Charleroi. We found him an hour later at the train station trying to flee to Slovakia. Needless to say, it was a bumpy start to the arrest, with different police forces interviewing suspects in the same case and making uncoordinated decisions. But fortunately, Prosecutor Boulet was there to knock their heads together. After recapturing Le Lièvre, Dutroux, his wife Martin, and Le Lièvre were all being questioned separately by interrogation teams. All of them denied any involvement right from the beginning. Dutroux was questioned for five hours and admitted nothing. They left him alone in the interrogation room for a few hours and then came back and continued questioning him for another three hours until 3 a.m., but he stuck to his story. The next morning, Judge Conrad indicted Dutroux for the disappearance of Letitia nonetheless. Meanwhile, Lelievre was still being questioned and was suffering from heroin withdrawal. One can't help but think that the police used this to their advantage to get Lelievre to talk. In any case, he finally cracked and admitted that he and Dutroux had abducted Letitia and Bertrie. This gave police what they needed to continue holding and interrogating the three suspects beyond 24 hours. But the clock was still ticking because Letitia was still unaccounted for. Lelievre vehemently insisted that he didn't know what happened to Letitia and that he just dropped her off with Dutroux at his house in Charleroi. As soon as the team responsible for interrogating Dutroux learned of Le Lièvre's confession, Sergeant Michel Demoulin and his partner Jean Laboule took another crack at Dutroux. After a long search, I was able to track down Michel Demoulin, and he agreed to discuss the case. The recording is poor, so it will fade out and you'll hear a translation. I was the most experienced investigator in the team, so they asked me to take the lead on interrogating Dutroux. I proceeded like I usually do with suspects. I asked him a lot of questions in order to get to know him, about his life, 
who did he live with, what was his house like, and so on, to get an idea about his personality. And I realised at one point that he was a vain person, and he needed to be recognised and to be respected for what he was, so I worked with that as well. The first time, I questioned him from 3.15 until around 8.30pm, and then took a break for about two hours. And then I questioned him again from around 11pm to 4 o'clock in the morning. And then he said he had indeed heard about Letitia's disappearance, but he had nothing to do with it. He'd seen her and she'd actually gotten into his van at one point, but that he let her go. With multiple witnesses having identified his van, Dutroux must have felt he had to admit something in order to remain credible. By the end of the second interview, it was 4 a.m. and Demoulin was breathing down Dutroux's neck. So he decided to share some crumbs. Here are Dutroux's actual words from transcripts of this interview, read by an interpreter. I saw a cute girl. She was wearing a skimpy summer outfit, and when she passed by, I said hello. She was interested in my van, and I told her to jump in, and she sat down next to me. We chatted a bit, and I asked her age, and she said she was 15 years old or something like that. She said she was fed up and had family problems. I could see she was open and easy. She wasn't afraid. When I found out her age, I was disappointed and decided I didn't want to have any trouble. And then she left. And the next day, on the 15th of August, I was waiting for him with all of the elements, and I interrogated him. Actually, it wasn't even an interrogation. I demonstrated to him that he was the author of the kidnapping. And I squeezed him, squeezed him, squeezed him, and to avoid making him lose face in front of me, I brought him along so he could admit it. And to take control, he said, quote, It's not one girl I'm going to give you, but two girls. And with that, in his mind, he became superior to me because he was giving me more than what I was asking for. It was a game for him. And he didn't want to tell me where they were. He wanted to hold me in suspense and take me to where he had the girls. He said he wouldn't admit anything then, but that he would go to Marcinel with me. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts To get a deeper understanding of Dutroux's character, I was able to interview a man who spent a lot of time with him, his lawyer, Ronnie Bodwain. My co-producer Thomas and I met with him in his offices in Brussels. After introductions and some chit-chat, I asked him about when Dutroux became his client. From 2003 until 2014, I was his lawyer, which means that I have done uh, the preparation of his court case, the whole court case, and even years after that, I have been in contact with him. Okay, and so you were in the thick of it and uh, spent, I guess, countless hours uh, with your client. Unfortunately, yes. Ronnie is a sprightly man, full of the energetic confidence you'd want to have in your corner when facing an uphill battle. I asked him to give his opinion on the mental state of Marc Dutroux. If you read the report of Dr. Denes, he said, I've done in my career, he was already at the end of his career at the time that he was coming to testify in court about the report that he made on Marc Dutroux. And I said, I've done about 4,000 of these uh, expertises, you know, in investigations towards the personality of somebody. I never met anybody so close to 100% psychopath. He says, if I have to put something on it, I think it must be about 97 or something. Right. But the strange thing is that it is exactly the one thing of feelings that he had left that became his downfall, and that is that pride. Right. Because there, at a certain moment, uh, the police commissioner, Monsieur Demoulin, who did the investigation, he also got to know through the investigation how Marc Dutroux was, and, you know, it's, it's very silly, but in fact, he uh, challenged him. He said, oh, but... You don't know anything about those girls that were, uh, were abducted, yeah? He inversed the rules, and he said, you're trying to make me believe that you know something about them. And, and Marc Dutroux, this pride, you know, overwhelming, yeah? He said, oh no, I'm not going to give you one, I'm going to give you another one. And he showed one of the girls what, that was on the billboard in the police uh, station. Yeah. And suddenly, because they didn't even ask anything to him about this, the, the second girl, they didn't even realize that he was involved. Suddenly they had two girls. And that is just by pushing on the one button left where there is some feeling, and that is this pride. Right. And I've used the same technique to let him do things that I wanted him to do. Because after a while you learn, you know, how people are acting. And I had to spend many hours with him. So after a while I was able to find out exactly what this Dumoulin had found out as well on the personality of my client. When Dutroux finally cracked, he agreed to take police where Sabine and Letitia were hidden. But he wouldn't just give them the address. 
He wanted to stay in control and watch it all happen. Little time was wasted before Dutroux was secreted away from the station to lead a group of gendarmes to his house in Charlois. He led them down to a basement and walked over to an unassuming shelf along the wall. He revealed that behind it was a trap door that opened up into a pitch black chamber beneath his house. Police shined their flashlights into the darkness and what they saw shocked them to their core. Crouched into the corner of a dark and damp dungeon were two naked girls visibly scared to death of whoever was coming for them. They were so afraid that they refused to move until Dutroux told them it was okay. Remember from Sabine's letter that Dutroux had told her that he was hiding her from a bad man who wanted to kill her. Give me to the bad man who would hurt me and kill me. He had told the same story to Letitia, so both girls were frightened to death when they first saw the police. At approximately 6.30 p.m. on August 15, 1996, all of Belgium, and the world for that matter, witnessed the surreal scene of Letitia Deleuze and Sabine Dardenne emerging into the light after being rescued from Dutroux's House of Horrors in Charleroi. It was filmed live by the Belgian TV channel VTM, and the footage is both harrowing and relieving. It wasn't long before international media picked up the story for the whole world to see. 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne disappeared in May. Letitia Dallez had been missing for only six days. Both were imprisoned in Dutroux's makeshift dungeon. Patricia Kelly, CNN Brussels. Letitia emerged first, looking confused and disheveled, followed by a pale and emaciated Sabine who'd spent 80 days in captivity most of them in the macabre dungeon. The king's prosecutor addressed the nation in a press briefing shortly after the discovery of the girls. A younger version of the man I interviewed, Michel Bourlet, appeared in a crowded room full of journalists, sitting next to the investigating judge, Jean-Marc Conrad. He was visibly tired with bloodshot eyes, but he also exuded an overwhelming sense of relief. J'ai l'immense plaisir Later that evening, there were scenes of jubilation and euphoria as Sabine and Letitia were reunited with their families on live television. Most of the country breathed a sigh of relief, and residents in Bertry spontaneously assembled a bonfire to burn the thousands of missing persons posters of the girls that had been prepared for distribution. But the parents of the other missing girls, like eight-year-olds Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, and high schoolers Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex, waited on pens and needles, wondering if their disappearances were also connected to Dutroux. News of the sordid dungeon and testimonies of Sabine and Letitia slowly started to trickle out. This basement and the crimes committed here have made this house notorious. Every Belgian knows about Marc Dutroux's Chamber of Horrors, that they must come here and see for themselves just how desperate and sordid conditions were for the girls held prisoner here. Juliet Bremner, ITV News, Charlois.
The world was about to learn the extent of the horrors of Dutroux and his accomplices. Sabine and Letitia's rescue was only the beginning of a story that would shock the world and rattle the foundations of Belgium. Next time on Le Monstre. I know I've studied the file and I've studied, amongst other things, I've studied the relationship between them both. And I'm sure that at that time, it was possible for him to do that because he had found literally, but also in a figure of speech, a partner in crime. Should have been the end of it in 1986. But my God, it was just the beginning. What happened after he got out of prison is just beyond belief. The Monster is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Resimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Resimont. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma RTBF archives and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jean Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.